Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, voice, wherever you're watching this. <laughs> I'm just going, oh man, I hope this my iPad does not overheat right now. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Uh, this may become Q&A. Uh, we'll see what happens here. Uh, you know, this week, uh, before we hop into the teaching, I was actually praying. Um, and I was pacing in the garage, uh, which has been my sanctuary recently. And I was praying, God, is there anything you would want me to share to the church? And I had this picture. Uh, it looked like a journal, uh, two pages of a journal, and there was just chaos. It looked like someone was just scribbling, and it was just lines, and it was just a bunch of chaos. And then a hand came down and turned the page. And I got this sense that God was inviting us. God was inviting you, inviting me. And I don't know if it's for you or if it was just for me or if it's for the church, um, but inviting us to turn the page, to walk away from some of the chaos that's going on. And this is not about... Uh, there's nothing to do with politics and nothing to do with inauguration this week. It's actually nothing to do with external circumstances. When you look at, like, say, the book of Philippians, where it talks about joy more than any other uh, letter in the New Testament, but yet that church was experiencing more persecution than any other uh, letter was written to a church. And so what Paul was telling the church in Philippi was this is not about external circumstances. That joy has nothing to do with what's going on around you. Joy is a change of perspective in your heart. And so what I believe God wants for us this morning before we hop into the teaching is he wants to invite you into a, a, new, a new page. And would you invite God to turn the page in your heart to put, kind of turn up the squelch in a sense on the chaos and the noise and the anxiety in your heart. Uh, and you have a choice. You can either stay in that or you can turn the page. You can dream again. This is more than a New Year's resolution. This is like a fresh breath. The sense I got was almost like, you know when you, uh, when you fill up your car's gas tank and the needle is not only full, it's past full? You know that like, it just feels good, right? That sense. Turn the page. Embrace that again. So I don't know if that was for you or if it was just for me, but man, invite God to turn the page in your heart, to get out of the chaos and anxiety and breathe again, dream again. Um, well, hey, with that, we are jumping back into a series called Hello, My Name is Jesus. And for those of you guys that are new, or maybe you just need a reminder, the reason why we're going through this series is there's so much misconception and uh, just wrong ideas, misrepresentation for who Jesus is. And so we felt like we started this journey over a year ago where Jesus needed to reintroduce himself and say, Hello, my name is Jesus. Let me show you what I value. Let me show you what I don't really ever talk about. And we're walking through the Gospel of Luke, and we're in Luke chapter 13. It's taken over us over a year to get to this point. So uh, our New Year's resolution is to finish out this, <laughs> this book of the Bible sometime this year. Um, I apologize ahead of time. Kind of sorry, not sorry for stepping on toes this morning. Uh, I guarantee I will. I stepped on my toes as I was preparing this. So uh, prepare your heart. Don't get mad at me. Oh, you can. I don't care. It doesn't bother me at all if you get mad at me. You can uh, email me at taka at it doesn't really bother me dot com. You can email me whenever you want uh, if this bothers you. So um, we're going to hop right in. Luke chapter 13, verses, verse 6. It's like four verses we're going to read, and we'll unpack it. Uh, it says this. Uh, then Jesus told this story, verse 6. A man planted a fig tree in his garden, came again and again to see if there's any fruit on it, but he was always disappointed. Finally, verse 7, finally he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taken up space in the garden. The gardener answered, sir, give it one more chance. 
leave it another year, and I'll give it special attention. Plenty of fertilizer. And if we get figs next year, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. What in the world does this mean? Is Jesus giving us gardening lessons, right? It's much bigger than that. See, the owner planted this tree. He invested into this tree. Now, the owner wanted the tree to produce fruit. He wanted more than anything else to, for it to produce fruit because we see that he wasn't angry that the tree didn't produce fruit. He was disappointed. There's some unmet expectations there. And I just want you to know, did you know that God wants you to bear fruit? God wants you to bear fruit. He's not waiting for you and, and getting angry when you don't produce fruit. He, he wants you to bear fruit. He wants the great things from you. And the owner knew this, right? So God wants you to not just attend a service. God wants you to more than just give financially or serve or be in a small group. God wants you to have fruit spiritually. Did you know that it takes three years for a fig tree to produce fruit? So when, God, when the owner says it's been three years and it still hasn't produced fruit, he knew that it would take three years. So he kept checking back. And what the owner didn't do is he didn't expect the tree to produce fruit before it was time. That's an important principle. He knew that it would take three years to incubate before it would begin to produce fruit. Some of you get so frustrated because your life didn't completely turn around right away. I hear this all the time. I gave my life to Jesus and it's been three months. It's been six months and I still deal with anger. I still deal with materialism. I've been serving Jesus since March 11, 1995. I still struggle with materialism. I still struggle with selfishness. I still struggle with impatience, right? But one of my favorite theologians, he's since passed, a guy named Dallas Willard, and someone asked him uh, once, how do you know when you're growing spiritually? And he goes, I get angry less. I get angry less. We're all on this long journey. So what, what took years, maybe decades, for these habits to form in your life, they're not going to change overnight. You have deep roots or deep ruts in your synaptic highways, and it's going to take some time to reform these, right? So here's your two-cent theology lesson of the day. There's the idea of justification and sanctification. Justification and sanctification. Justification is you go from not right standing to right standing with God. That happens in a moment. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, because of your surrender to him, because of what he did, he gave his righteousness to you, and now you are in right standing with God. That is justification that happens in a moment when you surrender to Jesus. But then begins a long process of sanctification. And sanctification is a slow inching towards Christ-like behavior. It's a long process. And sometimes it's two steps forward, two steps back. Imagine this. Say, say you, I'm sure we've all been in these situations where you're like, I'm going to clean my car. I'm going to reorganize this room. I'm going to renovate this part of the house or whatever. Inevitably, you get, you know, a portion of the way into the project and it's messier than it was before, right? And you're sitting with this anxiety and you're surrounded by all this stuff and you're going, maybe I shouldn't have even started this because I feel like it's two steps forward, six steps back, right? But you know that if I keep trending in this direction, it'll be good. This is the same way sanctification. Sometimes you begin the process and God shows this mirror in your face. You, you, maybe you pray, God, I want to be more patient. Sounds like an innocent prayer. So what does God do? Like a good coach, he puts you in situations or allows things that happen in your life that push you to your limits of patience and let stuff bubble out. 
And then God says, let's deal with that now. God, I want to be more loving, okay? Here are some people that are really challenging to love. Maybe they're on Facebook. Maybe they're in person. Maybe they have your same last name, right? And God goes, okay, let's push you to the limits of your love. And I think you can do one more rep. I think you can go a little further. That's what sanctification looks like. I remember years ago, about, about three, six months after I became a Christian, I really felt this desire. I was reading all these books on prayer, and I, I really felt like, God, I want to learn how to pray more. I want to have a deep-rooted uh, habit of prayer. And <laughs> the, the first thing that happened was uh, me and my buddy Dave, we would break into the church. We're part of a large church. The sanctuary is made to fit 5,000 people. And Dave and I, so there's all sorts of entrances around the campus of this church, and Dave and I had this long, uh, skinny metal pole that we would use to put between the two metal doors. This orange thing kept the door shut. And we can shimmy this thing, lift up uh, the security bar, and then put it to the side and open the door so that we can break into the church to pray. Right? Two steps forward, two steps back. We would, the, ironically, the janitor's name was Dave, and he always worked at, at the night shift. And one day we asked the janitor, Dave, uh, can we borrow your master key? We need to get into this office. Sure, we were church rats. We were there any time, so he trusted us. Well, we took that key, went to the uh, hardware store, and duplicated it. And it said right on the key, do not duplicate. One of those kind of keys, because it's a master key for like 400,000 square feet of church facility. So we duplicated it at the local hardware store. Uh, so that we can break into the church easier to pray. Okay, two steps forward, two steps back, right? Sanctification is a little messy sometimes. I remember one one of my friends um, from high school, it's a harder part of my story where, uh, how do I even say this? One day my youth pastor called me into his office and he said, hey, I, you need to know something. You're about to uh, hear it uh, from probably other sources, but I want to hear from me first. Uh, your friend uh, just went to prison two years ahead of me, and the reason why that's a big deal is because I, I'll never forget the conversation I had with him on the back porch at this house party before I became a Christian and convinced him to go down this path that he eventually kept on going down, and when I became a Christian, I obviously left that way of living, and he kept on going down that path until it eventually landed him in prison, and I was ticked. I wasn't mad at him. I was mad at me that I allowed my influence to take this guy down. Now, it was his choice, obviously, but I was really frustrated with myself. I was really angry. So I went to the sanctuary to pray, and people started leaving the sanctuary because there were people praying there all the time. And later, uh, a friend told me, that, hey, how's so-and-so doing? I'm like, how'd you hear about that? I was like, he goes, bro, everyone in the church knows about your friend because you were yelling in the sanctuary when you were praying and you had a lot of colorful language. And apparently I was dropping F-bombs and all sorts of creative uses of language. I was just passionately praying. Now, good side of it, my first response was to pray. Uh, first response was to lean on God. The bad side of it, um, probably shouldn't have used that language, <laughs> right? So it's, it's one, especially when there's like a lot of people praying in the sanctuary. But that's what sanctification is. It's two steps forward, two steps back many times, but you're slowly inching your way to Jesus. And I can give you so many examples. I'm sure you can give me examples too about how your life has changed. But here's the, the reality is the years know what the days never will. We tend, to, we tend to overestimate what we can do in a short amount of time 
and we severely underestimate what God can do over the long haul. You say, well, God, how come I, I haven't changed so much in this last month, this last year? But then you look at where you came from if you've been serving God for a long time. And yeah, you're not where you used to be. You're not where you want to be, where you're not where you used to be either. So I want to challenge you, don't give up. Keep moving towards God. Keep moving towards God. Three years, the owner was patient with this fig tree. So you may want to be a generous person, but you find yourself, selfishness and materialism keep on kind of rearing its ugly head in your life. Maybe you want to be patient, but you catch yourself with anxiety because people aren't moving fast enough for you. Or maybe, if you're honest, you want to be patient, but anxiety is raising up because God isn't moving fast enough for you. He's not doing what you want to do. Like, can, can I challenge you? Peace. Peace. God isn't angry. He's patiently just checking in like he did for this tree. But, but, and it's the, this is the big old but, right? There will come a time when, it, when you have to produce fruit. There will come a time when you have to produce fruit. If, you, if you've been following God for a long time, but there isn't a noticeable shift in your behavior towards Christ-likeness, you need to check yourself. The greatest evangel, the evangelistic tool I think we have in our arsenal should be the behavior of Christ followers. The biggest thing drawing people to become Christ followers should be the behavior of Christians. People should be so blown away by the patience, the love, the generosity, the selflessness, the humility, the teachability of Christ followers. With love and patience for those that we agree with and especially with those we disagree with. People should say, wow, we believe different things, but they're still patient. They're still teachable. They're still humble. Why are they like that? Because the reality is, who wouldn't want to be around someone like that? Who wouldn't want a friend like that? Someone that was loving and patient and kind and humble and teachable. Who wouldn't want a friend like that? Who wouldn't want a spouse like that? Who wouldn't want a parent or a leader like that? Who wouldn't want a neighbor like that? Some of you guys are thinking about your neighbors right now. You're like, yeah, I wish they were more like that. When Christians simply act like Christ, people want to follow him too. Seems really basic, but it's a double-edged sword. When we don't act like him, when we're prideful, when we're arrogant instead of humble, when we're know-it-alls instead of being teachable, when we argue and oppress with those we disagree with instead of loving them, when we build walls instead of bridges, when we're selfish instead of generous, when we're angry instead of being compassionate, then following Christ is the last thing people would want to do. Because why would they? Why would they? Who would want to be married to someone like that? Who would want to be a neighbor? Or who would want a neighbor like that? Who would want a leader like that? Who would want a parent like that? See, we're all like mirrors. The Bible says that we're image bearers of Christ. The Bible says that we are to be, we are to reflect his glory. And the whole idea is for people to look at us and since we're reflecting the image of Christ, that people see what Jesus is like because of our behavior. He see, people see his character in our lives. But when we are angry, 
when we're selfish, when we're short-sighted, when we're impatient, it clouds up the mirror and you can't see the image anymore. Right? And I want to, so this is a mirror, obviously. I don't like mirrors because then I see how old I look. So a lot of times, if there was something beautiful, like I hope this is not reflecting, I'm trying to see if it's reflecting sun in anyone's eyes. But say there's a, I'm, I'm, I'm at this perspective and I'm seeing, uh, I'm actually seeing Eric, Eric West, our elder. So <laughs> I'm seeing the beautiful image of Eric West, right? And I know he's real. I know his, his beautiful red hair, right? Because of the reflection. But if there is stuff in the way, if there's anger, if there's deceit, if there's impatience, if there's a lack of humility, if there's arrogance, pride, I don't see it anymore. All I see is the stuff, the junk. Now, is Eric real? Yeah. I wouldn't know it. Is Eric there? Yeah, I wouldn't know it. Because I don't see him anymore. If you look at statistics over the past nine months to a year, people are leaving the church by droves. Why? Because of the character of Christians. They say Jesus isn't real or Jesus isn't loving. Because how would they see the character of Christ when they see this, when they see anger, when they see arrogance, when they see selfishness, when they see conspiracy theorists, they don't see the fruit of the Spirit. They don't see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness. Is it there? Yes. God is those things. But they don't see it because all they see is us. Guys, the church is called to reflect God's character. So, so, maybe people don't see God moving because we've hidden him. Maybe people question the reality of God because they can't see him. Maybe they don't know that God is love, that God is patient, that God is kind because they haven't seen it in our behavior. They just see us. And like many of you, I've been so disappointed in the behavior of Christians over the past nine months, over hundreds of years. We don't have a great track record, uh, but specifically over the past nine months to a year. And over and over again, I wanted to, on one side, tell people that, yes, we're all part of one global church. We're all part of one big family. But on the other side, I want to go, we shouldn't be acting like that. I'm sorry that we act like that. There's a really haunting verse in 1 John. And it says this. This is, uh, translate, it says, this is how we've come to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his love for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers and not just be out for ourselves. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing. And here's the here's haunting part. If you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it, what happens to God's love? It disappears and you made it disappear. That's what 1 John says. 
when we don't act loving, when we don't act like Christ, what happens to God's love? It disappears, and you made it disappear. It's hidden. This isn't about you. It never was. It never was about you. It never was about your comfort. It was always about Jesus. Our whole role as Christians is to point people to Jesus, to display his character. So that people see him clearly in our lives. Even the way we comport ourselves as a voice church, like the organization of voice church. We want to do the best job we can at creating a quality experience, but we don't want people to say voice church is great. We want people to say God is great. We want to do a great job with the music, with the productions, with teaching. But we don't want people to say, I love voice church because so-and-so is a good teacher or so-and-so is a good worship leader. Or so That's not the goal. The goal is that they would say, Jesus is great. I see his character clearly. And there's some things I need to surrender to him. That's what we want people to leave church thinking about. We want people to realize that he's worth surrendering everything to. We want people to realize that Jesus is the hope of the world. This is why Jesus says that it's paramount that we produce fruit to the point where in this parable, and over and over again he says in the New Testament, that if a tree doesn't produce fruit, cut it down. It's taking up space. I know that sounds harsh, but again, he's not talking about gardening. He's saying if a Christian doesn't display the character of God, it's not fulfilling its primary purpose. It's taking up space. Doesn't matter how many times it goes to church. Doesn't matter how many times it tithes or serves or goes to a small group. If it's not displaying the character of Christ, it's taking up space. Again, I know that sounds harsh, but these are the words of Jesus. The parable ends with the, with the gardener giving one more year. The owner gives the gardener, take one more year. It hasn't produced fruit. It should be producing fruit by now. Take one more year. Nurture it. Take care of it. In other words, is there anything parasitic on it? Are there diseases? Are there any weeds taking energy, distracting it from producing fruit? Take a year and focus on it. Invest into it. Nurture it. But if it still isn't producing fruit, cut it down. This is referring to the final judgment. I want to close with this thought, and I hope it disturbs you. Honestly. I really hope it does in a good way. If I have what I say is an orange tree, okay, or an orange county. So say I have what's called, a, 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 I say it's an orange tree, but it's not producing oranges. Then really there's only two options, right? Either one, it's not healthy. There's parasites or disease that we need to get rid of. There's competing plants around it that's taking energy away so it can't produce fruit. It's not healthy. It needs fertilizer. It needs more sunlight. It needs more water. There's some things we can do to change the environment so that it can produce oranges. That's one option. It's not healthy. The second option is it's not an orange tree. And no matter what I do, it won't produce oranges. I can get it around other oranges. I can tape oranges to the tree to make it look like it has oranges. I can put it in a whole grove of orange trees. 
but it will never produce oranges because it's not actually an orange tree. Here's the question. What about a Christian who doesn't produce Christian fruit? What about a Christian who doesn't produce Christian fruit? Remember, Paul says in Galatians 5, the, the evidence that the Spirit of God is working in someone is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit. If that isn't there, you have two options. Either the, the person is unhealthy spiritually, that we need to take some time, like the gardener took a year, we need to take some time to, is there any parasitic things that are sapping energy, distracting? Are we too busy to pray, but watching season after season on Netflix? Are there some things distracting energy and focus so we don't produce fruit? Are there parasitic relationships that are leading it down the wrong path? Are, are, does it need more nutrients? Does it need community? But are there some things that, yes, they are a Christian. We just need to take some time to invest and nurture it so that it can produce fruit naturally. Because fruit doesn't come from the outside any more than you can, you know, tape oranges to a tree and say it's an orange tree. Fruit doesn't come by behavior modification. The fruit of the Spirit comes from within. It's the Spirit of God moving in your heart. So one, Christian's just unhealthy. Let's focus. Though all the things we encourage you to do every week, small group and read your Bible and pray and all that, that's those are spiritual disciplines. This is creating an environment to produce fruit. Or the second option is it's not a Christian. If you're not producing fruit, either you're not healthy spiritually or you're not actually a Christian. Just like I put a tree into an orange grove and it's around other oranges, doesn't make it an orange tree. You can take a person and put them around Christian stuff, small group and all the like, it doesn't make them a Christian. So if you aren't producing spiritual fruit, you need to ask yourself, am I unhealthy spiritually? Or am I just going to church things but I've never really surrendered to Jesus? He's not really Lord of my life. So here's the big question. Two of them. First one is this. What does your fruit say about your relationship with God? What does your fruit say about your relationship with God? Second question is this. Is there a fruitless area of your life that you've gotten too comfortable with? Is there a fruitless area of your life that you've gotten too comfortable with? Maybe you're just saying, well, I'm just, I'm just not one of those people that serve. I'm just not one of those people that are generous. I'm just not, I just, okay, I have, I have a short temper. Great. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. This is the evidence that the Spirit of God is moving in someone. So what does your fruit say about your relationship with God? And secondly, is there a fruitless area of your life that you've gotten too comfortable with? that the gardener would come in and say, no, there should be fruit there. And there's not, and you've been okay with that for too long. It's time to produce fruit. We're gonna end with a song called So Will I. It's actually one of my favorite songs uh, that we sing. Feel free to sing it with us or feel free to chew on these questions while the song 
is playing. Let me pray for us. God, we, we need you, God. Our nation needs you, God. But that's too broad, man. For us as individuals, would you help us to represent you well? God, I pray that the way we live, that people would see you clearly. Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts, God? We don't want to just put on services. We want to represent you well. We don't want people just to see us. We want them to see your character. Nuanced by our personality and the way you made us, but clearly your character. God, would people see that you are love because we act lovingly? Will people see that you are generous because we act generously? Will people see that you're patient because we are patient? And we're not canceling people just because we disagree with us. God, would ultimately our behavior end up with people surrendering to you? God, we repent. We repent for our pride, for our selfishness, for us equating just Western capitalism with Jesus living. We repent of that. And we say, God, lead us. Lead us. At the end of our lives, would you be able to say, well done, good, faithful. You did what I asked you to do. You represented me well. We give it to you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. If you're here in person, would you stand? Uh, let's sing this together.